Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, August 24th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. President Biden saying the United States will stick to its withdrawal timeline in Afghanistan after announcing that 37,000 people have been evacuated from the chaos in that country. Florida coronavirus infections surging as hospitals in a number of states buckle under the weight of the Delta variant. And more than seven months after supporters of former President Trump stormed the United States Capitol, new charges and an expanding investigation into the events of that day. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. President Biden set to deliver remarks despite growing calls to extend the August 31st troop withdrawal deadline in Afghanistan. The president says he will not do so. The Taliban also drawing what it describes as a red line, saying it will not accept extending that timetable. All this unfolding amid a mad scramble to get U.S. citizens and allies out of Kabul. At Kabul International Airport, the end of the month is coming too quickly. The U.S. is trying to hit its self-imposed August 31st deadline to complete the evacuation from Afghanistan. In the days remaining, we believe we have the wherewithal to get out the American citizens who want to leave Kabul. CIA Director William J. Burns meeting face-to-face with the top Taliban leader in Kabul on Monday. The Taliban drawing a red line, warning there will be consequences if the U.S. extends its deadline. If they are intent on continuing the occupation, so it will um, provoke a reaction. This amid mayhem around Kabul's airport. U.S. officials reporting helicopters and troops were sent into Kabul to extract Americans and airlift them to the airport. Planes flying almost 11,000 people out over a 12-hour period on Monday, more than twice the number of people evacuated in the same period on Sunday. The White House press secretary pushing back on claims that Americans are being left behind. I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They are not. We are committed to bringing Americans who want to come home, home. Meanwhile, one of four Afghan soldiers wounded in a firefight after an unknown sniper killed a comrade who was guarding Kabul's airport. The attack following warnings that ISIS posed a threat to the evacuation of thousands of foreigners and Afghans from the capital. The threat is real. It is acute. It is persistent. And it is something that we are focused on with every tool in our arsenal. In Washington, President Biden's approval ratings are dropping, but he's pressing forward. His focus right now is on taking the steps and making the decisions that he feels are in the interests of our national security and the American people. The Pentagon, meanwhile, is saying that they will need more U.S. bases to hold the evacuees that have already been processed, vetted and flown into the United States. The situation at America's hospitals continues to grow more desperate as the Delta variant fuels a rise in infections not seen since the height of the pandemic last year. But officials and health experts remain hopeful that the full authorization of the Pfizer vaccine announced on Monday could help turn the tide for those who remain unvaccinated and very much at risk. Here's Grecia Lastra with the story. 
Major new developments in the fight against COVID-19. The FDA granting full approval for Pfizer's vaccine, the fastest vaccine approval in FDA history. Those who've been waiting for full approval should go get your shot now. Pfizer becoming the first vaccine to move past emergency use authorization. Their shot, made with mRNA, does not contain any part of the coronavirus and does not alter people's DNA. In order to get full FDA approval, Pfizer had to undergo a more stringent review, submitting results from its ongoing clinical trials and proving substantial evidence of effectiveness. The FDA not just took their time and did the due diligence that needed to be done, but did it quickly and efficiently. The move paves the way for more corporations, government and schools to issue vaccine mandates. The Pentagon now preparing to require the shot for its 1.3 million active duty troops. New York City announcing shots will now be required for all school employees, with weekly testing no longer an option. And workers at United Airlines have five weeks to show the now-required proof of vaccination. While the FDA's full approval of the Pfizer vaccine applies to those 16 and older, the agency making it clear that does not mean it should be given off-label to younger children. They are not just small adults, so we really would have to have the data and the appropriate dose before uh, recommending that, that children uh, be vaccinated. But this first full approval should be a game changer for those who have been hesitant to get a shot. A recent poll finding 3 in 10 of those unvaccinated would be more likely to get it now. And with every state in the country experiencing high transmission except Vermont and Maine, more Americans are dying of COVID, now an average of 738 every day. Florida just saw its deadliest week. Healthcare workers hoping people will get the vaccine as they face a crush of COVID patients. One of my biggest frustrations is that we're maybe not vaccinating our kids at a rate that... Um, is beneficial to everyone. This is Grecia Lasta reporting for U News. And with the Delta variant fueling a dramatic rise in infections, paramedics in Houston, Texas say that they are barely able to handle emergency calls from people with COVID-19. They also warn that the situation is the same at hospitals where there is barely enough room for more patients. Randall Summers has this report. The Delta variant of the coronavirus continues to rage in Houston, where new infections are overwhelming the system. Scenes like these are happening every day, paramedics say. Here, a man is seen lying down and not breathing as they try to resuscitate him. Isabel and Scott are part of the team that deals with these emergencies. Isabel says the situation is alarming and that there are not enough stretchers in the medical centers. We have a lot of COVID calls and a lot of shortness of breath calls. Health officials in Houston say the rate of positive cases has reached a record high of more than 225,000. It is an increase in the number of incidents of about 20% from a few months ago. Isabel and Scott showed Univision what their day-to-day -day is like since the pandemic began. Shortly after the first scene, there was another call. This time it was a man in his 60s, also positive for coronavirus. The hospitals are full and are delaying the time we are waiting to transfer our patients to the emergency rooms. 
Health authorities continue to call on people to protect themselves since the Delta variant is more contagious and are urging people to get vaccinated. Reported in Houston, Texas by Genero Tijerina, this is Randall Summers for U News. And for more context on the situation facing healthcare facilities around the country, let's go to Dr. Ilan Shapiro. He's the Medical Director of Health Education and Wellness at AltaMed in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for being with us again, doctor. My pleasure as always. The FDA has granted full approval to the Pfizer vaccine. How big of a game changer is that for hospitals and workplaces that are requiring these vaccines? I can tell you for sure that being on the front line, uh, I want to have all the best things to defend myself, my team members, and most importantly, do not bring any special things back to home. And that's actually the vaccine. I think that after all the suffering that we have seen and the things that we are enduring on hospitals and clinics all over the country, this is a very welcoming thing for all of us. Dr. Anthony Fauci said yesterday that the pandemic won't be under control until the spring of 2022. Do you agree with that timeline? Right now, the Delta variant has been changing all the rules that we have. And most importantly, at the faster pace that we actually get vaccinated, the best way to create more barriers between us and the virus spreading and creating more variants. Then I hope, I hope, I hope that um, in that timeline, it accounts to a lot of kids actually getting vaccinated also. Then we have a lot of hurdles there, but I hope that we are getting at least on the correct pathway for this. Booster shots are also expected to start rolling out later in the year. When should people get their shot? Because we know, for example, a lot of health workers and the elderly received it at the beginning of the year, but that hasn't been the case for everyone across the board. Completely. And this is very important that it's for Pfizer and Moderna at this moment. And if you already received your Pfizer and Moderna shot and actually your second shot more than eight months ago, you will probably get your third booster shot uh, after September 20th. And the idea of this is to remind your body how to create those antibodies and protect yourself. Uh, we were seeing and watching uh, with Pfizer and Moderna how often and how long the, the, the protection will last. And right now we're seeing that it's six to eight months. And you know, the cutoff was at eight months, and that's where we are going to be starting. And probably we'll see the first wave for uh, healthcare workers, as, as you mentioned, and, and other groups um, early on on this month. Now, children under 12 years old are still not eligible for the vaccine. Is there any more information on when we can expect to see that? I am, um, as a father and a pediatrician, I can tell you for sure that I'm waiting and waiting and waiting for that good news. Um, right now, Pfizer and Moderna are actually doubling efforts to get more kids involved with research and probably will have uh, enough data by December to recommend uh, both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Well, we need to continue taking care of ourselves and those around us. Thanks so much, Dr. Elon Shapiro of Altamed. Take care. A pleasure as always. And looking around the country, a report expected on Monday from Arizona's Republican-led audit of the 2020 election results is now delayed after three members of the auditing team tested positive for coronavirus. The firm Cyber Ninjas has been auditing the 2.1 million votes cast in Maricopa County. It's unclear if the contractors had been vaccinated. 
Meanwhile, New York has a new governor. Former Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul took the oath of office at midnight, becoming the state's first female top official. All of this happening after Andrew Cuomo announced his resignation two weeks ago. He was facing impeachment after the state attorney general released a report finding he had sexually harassed 11 women. Cuomo has denied all of the allegations, saying he never touched anyone inappropriately, but he did acknowledge that some of his behavior made others uncomfortable. And as one of his last roles as New York governor, Andrew Cuomo granted clemency to six people, but was criticized for commuting the sentence of David Gilbert, a 76-year-old man who was convicted of murder and robbery in 1983. Cuomo says Gilbert served 40 years in prison related to an incident in which he was a driver, not the murderer. But a Rockland County official says Cuomo debased himself and the state of New York by focusing on the well-being of murderers instead of the victims. And also in New York, Rudy Giuliani associate Igor Fruman is expected to plead guilty on four counts of election law violations in Manhattan federal court tomorrow. According to a court filing, Fruman is slated to reverse his not guilty plea on charges that he funneled foreign money to a U.S. campaign. Fruman was born in the Soviet Union and is accused of searching in Ukraine for information against the rivals of former President Donald Trump. He was indicted in October 2019 for conspiracy to violate the ban on foreign donations to state and federal elections. And now to Washington, where legal proceedings continue in the wake of the January 6th Capitol insurrection. The leader of the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, was sentenced Monday to more than five months in jail for burning a church's Black Lives Matter banner in December and bringing high-capacity rifle magazines to Washington, D.C. days before the Capitol riot. Even though Tarrio was not in Washington on the day of the January 6th insurrection, the judge said Tarrio's preceding conduct in the nation's capital undermined American democracy. And in other developments, the U.S. Capitol police officer who shot and killed pro-Trump insurrectionist Ashley Babbitt on January 6th will not face any disciplinary action. The U.S. Capitol Police Department made the announcement Monday. Babbitt was one of many attackers who overran the Capitol that day. She was shot while trying to lead the mob through a broken window into the speaker's lobby. U.S. Capitol Police said in a statement that the officer who shot Babbitt was following department policy According to that policy, an officer can use deadly force to protect human life, including their own, or to protect any person in immediate danger of serious physical injury. And the lawmakers investigating the insurrection are planning to ask a telecom companies, companies to preserve phone records pertinent to the probe. Sources say that includes records of several members of Congress. Notices to telecom companies are set to go out as soon as this week. It's the first step in a process that could eventually lead to witness testimony. The chairman of the select committee investigating the insurrection has said he hopes to issue subpoenas by the end of the month. It's not yet clear which congressional members' records the committee is interested in. However, several Republicans have acknowledged talking to former President Trump by phone on January 6th, and that includes Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Congressman Jim Jordan. More of you news after this short break. 
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. That would essentially put an end to the longest war in U.S. history. This is the interior of a stash house that we found in this right along today. State authorities recommend avoiding them at night. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Over 430,000 children in the U.S. live in foster care, with a high number of them in homes run by a for-profit organization. According to a recent Bloomberg report, over the last three decades, many states have privatized parts of their foster care systems in search of efficiencies, with states like Kansas and Florida privatizing their system completely. But according to child advocates, this privatization has led vulnerable children to experience greater rates of abuse and neglect. Now a team of advocates has created a petition to end for-profit foster care. Joining me now is the organizer of that petition, Peter Samuelson. He's the president of First Star, an organization advocating for children in foster care. Thanks so much for being here, Peter. Welcome to U News. Thank you for having me. Why are states turning to for-profit organizations to run their foster care system? I think we have a knee-jerk uh, belief that anything government can do, private industry can do better. And I think in many cases that's true. Uh, but there are exceptions. When the um, fire department arrives to put the flames out in your house, you don't want them inquiring about your creditworthiness first. And the same is true for the nation's 430,000 kids in foster care. These are kids who've been abused or neglected, who have been removed from their birth family by local government, and then an agency is appointed to supervise their placement, sometimes in group homes, sometimes with individual families. In 28 states, those agencies are run for profit. The Senate Finance Committee on a bipartisan basis did a raft of research and determined that the outcomes in terms of the uh, individual children are dramatically worse when there is a profit motive and also the cost to we the taxpayers is much higher so on fixfostercare.org, the website, we have a petition. We are taking it in October to Washington. We have meetings set in the White House, in the House of Representatives, and in the U.S. Senate. And what we are saying is that foster care agencies should be run in the best interests of the individual children, either by local government itself or by a 501c3 charity, but not run for profit. Honestly, these big companies, and you know, there are some of them, one of them actually on the New York Stock Exchange does $2 billion revenue a year. We can cut the cost and increase the good outcomes for these unfortunate kids. Bad enough to be abused or neglected, but then to go into a situation where someone is making a buck on your head, we can do better than that, and we are better than that. Samuel, so fix... 
I would like to um, go ahead into talking about the conditions for these children that are living in foster care systems when a for-profit group is actually involved. Talk to us a little bit about that as well, please. Yes, well, um, reverse incentives, and this is all on the website, fixfostercare.org. Um, the Senate Finance Committee fully investigated this. There's like a 200-page report with reverse incentives. You know, fit another kid into the same group home, earn a bonus. Uh, move a kid, earn a bonus. Um, it's all upside down. Um, when you remove the profit incentive, you can then act in the kid's best interests individually. Uh, you're not putting a padlock on the refrigerator. Uh, God forbid someone should want a snack uh, in the evening uh, because you're not only operating um, yeah, to suit some, you know, stockholders, you, you're operating uh, in the best interests of the children. So the website is fixfostercare.org. We have 335,000 signatures on it so far. We would love your viewers uh, to go on fixfostercare.org. Uh, it takes about 30 seconds to sign the petition, and we will be with foster kids on Capitol Hill in October with the petition in cardboard boxes, and we're going to go and put them on people's desks, and we're going to say we are better than this. Uh, the president announced earlier this year that the incarceration, the prison system um, for convicted adult felons will no longer be run with federal money through for-profit prisons. If it isn't good enough for convicted felons, who in their right mind can think that making a buck on the heads of completely innocent foster kids should be acceptable? Thank you so much for all this insight, Peter Samuelson, and good luck with that petition and your overall efforts to help out so many children. So glad to be with you, and thank you very much. FixFosterCare.org. Several weeks ago, an overcrowded vehicle crashed near the town of Encino, Texas. Ten migrants were killed in that accident, and now a survivor of that crash claims those left behind were mistreated by immigration officials. Andrew Peña brings us that story. More than two weeks have passed since the accident in Encino, Texas, where 10 people died and 20 were injured. And some survivors are having a hard time. I have damage to all the tissues in my hand. This young Salvadoran, who asked to hide his identity, says the accident left him with several injuries. He was also deported. I have a deviated clavicle and have a blow to my thorax. After the accident, he was admitted to a hospital in McAllen, Texas. But three days later, he says he was taken out of the hospital in the middle of the night. Immigration officers arrive at 2 a.m. They handcuff us. I tell him they told me he was going to help me. He spoke to me in a bad way. He gave me a bad expression. Next to him was another survivor in recovery. The two were taken out together. I asked him not to handcuff us, that we were not going to run, but he handcuffed us. From there, they put him in an overcrowded detention center, where he was in pain from his injuries. At times, someone would stand up to rest, and someone else would sit down because the room was too small, and there's not enough room for everyone. 
To his surprise, a couple days later, he was expelled from the country while still convalescing. At about 6 o'clock in the evening, they put us in an immigration van. They don't tell us anything. They just put us in the van, handcuff us, and take us up to leave us on a bridge. After wandering the streets of Reynosa for three days, the family sent him money to return to El Salvador. My rights were violated because I had the right to an attorney, to call my family, to stay in the hospital in McAllen because of the situation I was in. Reported in Miami by Pedro Utreras. Andrew Pena, U News. In California, new accusations that the police department to the city of Bakersfield violated the constitutional rights of its residents. And that's according to a four-year probe performed by the state's Department of Justice. Investigators say they have evidence that shows unreasonable force, including deadly force, was used on people with mental health issues. A history of unreasonable searches and seizures was also uncovered. The civil investigation into the Bakersfield department began in 2016 after numerous allegations of serious misconduct and excessive force. The chief of the Bakersfield PD denies the allegations but says new policies will be enforced. Also making headlines in Southern California, movie mogul Harvey Weinstein is once again facing a new sexual assault charge. According to court documents, a grand jury reinstated that recently dismissed charge. Earlier in the month, a Los Angeles Supreme Court judge had dismissed a sexual battery charge after Weinstein's defense team argued that the statute of limitations had run out. Weinstein has so far pleaded not guilty to a number of sexual assault charges in Los Angeles. He was found guilty last year in New York of first-degree criminal sexual conduct and third-degree rape and sentenced to a 23-year prison sentence term in New York, but was extradited in July to California to face trial there. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.